Hey, welcome to In The Shift. My name's Michael Frost. A couple of things before we get going. Firstly, thanks to everyone who has listened and given feedback since the first episode. I've really loved hearing from you uh, and that for some of you out there, parts of my story at least have resonated with parts of yours. And so I'd love to keep hearing from you. If you do have the urge, you can contact me through the website at intheshift.com or you can also engage in discussion via the weekly blogs that are posted there or you can jump, as always, on the social media train via Facebook, Instagram or Twitter and if the algorithms work in our favour, maybe we'll collide. Uh, let me know what you're thinking, the stories that come to mind, maybe the questions that you have or the things that come up for you as you uh, listen and read and engage and we'll see if we can figure some of this out together. I'm really hopeful that as we go along with this... Um, what we're able to do is to create some space to talk about some of the things that really matter to us, uh, where those conversations are allowed and encouraged and are curious and maybe even a little bit imaginative. Um, yeah, so that's what I what I hope for. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about truth and honesty and how power dynamics can often work to elevate certain kinds of truth, but often at the expense of our ability to be honest and truthful. Uh, and it's building a little bit on some of the thoughts that I discussed in episode one. In fact, these first four or five episodes are going to be wrestling really with the intersection of power dynamics and spirituality and faith and faith communities. And the reason I think this is important is because that for many people, it's the way that power dynamics function that have often made us unable to have the kind of authentic and open conversations that on some level would like to be able to have, even when we don't realize it. Um, so that's where we're heading for the next little while. Uh, this is episode two of In The Shift. Let's get into it. So today's episode is titled, When Honesty Confronts the Truth. Truth is a complicated thing, and so is honesty, actually. They've always been complicated, and maybe especially in faith communities. I mean, maybe on one level, truth can seem pretty straightforward, you know, especially in a modern scientific world, like two plus two equals four. Or I can tell the truth about what I had for breakfast today, which was peanut butter on toast. But what about when we start making truth claims about much bigger things like God and the universe and the meaning of life? Uh, and Christians and other religious people, I guess, are, are super interested in these particular claims about reality. They're in search of the truth, to know the truth, believe the truth, understand the truth, live by this truth. I mean, I lecture theology students every week, and they want to know the truth. They want me to tell them how it is. Uh, and usually, to begin with, at least, it's often, tell me, please tell me really insightful, profound, and deep reasons for why the things I already think and believe are correct and are the truth. Please give me impressive reasons to validate what I already think. The interesting thing to me about this is that although many people who believe passionately in the idea of truth can spend maybe their whole lives trying to know that truth and live in that truth and they'll turn up to church every week and hear people talk about that truth and they'll go to discipleship programs and and classes and pursue this knowing of truth more deeply, these kinds of people can also really struggle for some reason. And I know this because this has been a part of my journey along the way. When others are honest and truthful <laughs> about their real experiences, their questions, their doubts, or their different ways of seeing things. So it almost seems like there's two kinds of truth in this sense. There's a list of approved truths that have been adopted by a particular faith community, for example. And then there's the telling the truth about your own experience or what you might really think and believe and question. And 
Sometimes this is fine if your own experience, your own questions or your own discoveries fit within the framework of the overall truth that everybody is committed to, then everything kind of turns out okay, you know. Uh, honesty is treasured and esteemed in these kinds of cases. Oh, it's so great that you're searching. It's so great that you're asking. It's so great that you're bringing those experiences into the conversation. Uh, but the bigger question for me at least here is what happens when these two kinds of truths actually come into conflict? So what if that second kind of truth, the truth about your own experience, uh, the questions that do come to the surface for you at times, what happens when that kind of truth comes into conflict with the first kind of truth, with the kind of truth which everybody agrees and says this is the way things are? And some of what can happen in that space is you can find that you're in trouble, sometimes with others, uh, often with others, but sometimes with yourself as well. Am I allowed to think that? Am I allowed to ask that? Am I allowed to say that or question that? So at this point, there's, I guess, at least a couple of different things that can happen. There's all sorts of different ways it can go. Let's take the example of a Christian community that believes that everyone who receives prayer for healing should be healed, for example. Uh, in fact, you know, some Christians of particular streams would say that healing is provided and what is all that is needed is your faith to believe it. If we can believe it, we will receive it. Uh, you see this kind of thing on Christian television all the time. If you ever watch that, I used to watch a bit of it uh, just to uh, torture myself, I think, mostly, uh, until my wife would hear the Christian TV come on down the other end of the house and she would uh, yell down the hallway, is that Christian television I can hear? <laughs> Turn that off. Uh, it's kind of the other way around from the kind of trouble I used to get in when I was younger. So in this kind of faith, tradition, I suppose you could call it that. The only thing really standing between you and your healing is having absolute confidence in the truth that you will be healed. Total faith, no doubt, you know. So what happens when the person's actual experience is that they aren't healed? Well, in some instances, and in particular unhealthy versions of spirituality, the first kind of truth, as I'm calling it here, the supposed truth that you should be healed, uh, or even that you are healed, even if you don't feel it, can sometimes overshadow the truth of the person's actual experience. And so this can look a lot like all sorts of things, it might show itself by saying, well, your experience is telling you that you're sick, but you need to believe the truth that you're healed. This was a phrase that I used to hear quite a bit. The facts might say you're sick, but you need to believe the truth. Um, which, if you're not from that kind of tradition, that must sound a bit insane. Um, but that's the kind of thing I heard at times, you know. Um, don't listen to the facts, listen to the truth. This is kind of a Christian post-truth society, like well ahead of its time. I remember when I was about 16 and uh, my parents uh, church pastors and we had this healing minister come through town and uh, I went up to, you know, I had for many years been wanting to get my short-sightedness healed and so I went up the front in this healing meeting and this guy uh, prayed for me and nothing happened to my eyes but what he said was if you want to really live in faith that you have already received your healing, it just hasn't made its way to your eyes yet, then you need to take off your glasses and um, live in the reality of the healing that is already yours, something like that. Anyway, so I took off my glasses, and I'm like, I'm pretty blind, you know, and uh, <laughs> I walked around for probably a good 24 hours just crashing into things and just waiting for my miracle to arrive. Eventually, you know, I had to go to school and put my glasses, the glasses of shame back on. Oh, man. 
Um, but that's kind of one way it can go, you know. If your experience of reality does not agree with this truth that everyone's already agreed with, then your experience of reality is kind of overridden by the higher truths. And this happens in ways that are not necessarily all as ridiculous and crazy as faith healing type stuff. It also happens when your experiences contradict any of the important truths that have been embraced by the community you belong to. And a big reason why people can react in such hostile ways sometimes, I think, is because like all of us in our own ways, these, these people base their lives on those truths. When we hold to truths that we believe are objectively right about the universe and about God and about meaning, then we live our lives according to those things. And so when someone's experience doesn't match, when someone's questions emerge, they threaten the very grounds of the whole way you live your life. And that's a little bit terrifying. So to have somebody do that is not particularly enjoyable or received very well. Uh, in a related way, I think this is often at the heart of the conservative Christian clash with science too, you know. So we see this kind of thing play out in particular with the creation and evolution debates in conservative Christianity. Um, for many Christians who read Genesis 1 literally, uh, there's no amount of science in the world that could convince them that God didn't literally create everything in six days because they've already attached themselves to a truth claim about what they believe the Bible is saying. Therefore, that is the truth. Therefore, science and our experience of the world and no amount of data or or whatever it might be could uh, contradict that higher truth that's already been uh, approved and attached to. Uh, I remember when I was at... Uh, school and then into university, I, I originally studied biomedical science. So I did a lot of biology. And, uh, and I remember doing an exam where there was a whole section on evolutionary theory. And I was a good Christian, you know. And I filled out the answers badly because I hadn't studied that section very much because I thought it was ridiculous. And at the top of my uh, this section of the exam, I scrawled across in pen, I'm just giving you the answers you want, but these aren't the tr these answers aren't the truth. The truth is that God created the world. Yeah, um, <laughs> there's something kind of to admire about that level of of confidence in such a young person. And I was convinced that this would be a wonderful, I don't know, witness or something to my uh, pr science professors who would read this and be like, "He's absolutely right. Um, <laughs> what have we been doing with our lives?" <laughs> Now being um, a, a lecturer, uh, I know that's probably not what their response was as they marked that paper. Anyway, so I was very much entrenched in this kind of view. Uh, it's what the Bible said. That's how I read it. And so I was, I was like, well, that's the truth. So therefore, nothing, everything else just must be people with an agenda trying to overthrow uh, religion. And, uh, and I remember I went to work for a science company. So after I finished... Um, my degree, I went off and worked for a research company and part of my job was to read DNA sequences and to compare them between different organisms and to look at what was going on. Uh, and, and I remember sitting with a colleague who was very aware of my anti-evolution and uh, creationist leanings and, and, and thought they were a bit silly, but anyway, tolerated me well, very kindly. And uh, we were sitting there and we were looking at these two DNA sequences between these two different organisms and I remember in this conversation as we were studying what was going on in these particular sequences, I said out loud, you can see, you can see how it's evolved from, from this organism to this. You can actually see the way the DNA sequence has, has changed over time. 
And then I suddenly caught myself saying this out loud and I was like, oh, no, uh, this is outrageous. I should not have said that. She caught me in my moment of weakness with this smug smirk on her face uh, and I quickly sort of backtracked and tried to get out of it and, <laughs> uh, and re-entrenched myself back in my, no, 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 that's terrible, that's just, the, that's just a funny little thing I, I said, but I don't really mean it. Um, and, and on I went. Um, because for me, there was a higher truth that meant anything I was looking at, whether it be science or facts or, or whatever, I couldn't possibly uh, contradict this truth that I'd already attached myself to and believed in. Um, funnily enough, it was when I studied theology later on, a number of years later, that I was like, oh, you don't actually read Genesis that way at all. That's not even really the point. And then suddenly I experienced this feeling of liberation as I realized I was able to uh, hold both science and faith together in some kind of uh, meaningful way. Yeah. Anyway, all of that to say that when you have a commitment to this kind of higher set of truths that cannot be questioned because they are in some way the universal objective truth, then when experiences and ideas and even facts that emerge in a different domain are expressed, they're often shut down. And then if you're in a position of power of some kind, well, then this becomes a very tempting way to, to operate. When people are honest about their experiences in a way that contradicts the kind of story you're trying to tell, maybe the kind of... Um, organization you're trying to run, the, trying to, the kind of faith community you're trying to lead, then you're very tempted to push those experiences down, to suppress them, to make them go away. And if you have power and they don't, then you're able to do that really effectively a lot of the time. Even still going on the science thing, think about when Galileo built on the insights of Copernicus, even if their science wasn't, uh, you know, technically as, as correct as we might understand now, uh, Galileo, Galileo started pushing this idea that the Earth was in fact going around the sun rather than the Earth being at the centre of the universe and everything going around the Earth. And the Catholic Church, who at that time had a huge amount of power, social power, religious power, um, political power, they didn't like this theory. They didn't agree with it. Um, and so he wasn't just disagreed with as a scientist. He was tried as a heretic. You know, He had a heresy trial. And in the first trial, he was, um, I think he was in the end found not guilty necessarily of heresy, but he was told to not continue promoting this terrible view. And he couldn't help himself, and so he continued promoting this uh, view that, in fact, uh, the earth was going around the sun, and he was tried again, found guilty of being a heretic, and lived the remainder of his life under house arrest. And that kind of all sounds ridiculous now, but it never feels as ridiculous at the time, especially if you're the ones with the power, because you feel super righteous in your defense of the truth, you know. So they weren't sitting there going, yes, we shall use our power to oppress this man who is uncovering uncomfortable things. In fact, probably, what I mean, maybe, maybe some of them were thinking that, but I would imagine that a lot of what they were thinking was, we already hold to this truth about the universe and about God and about our place in the, in the universe. And this kind of insight or science or theory is contradicting these truths we've already committed ourselves to. We need to defend the truth, so we need to shut this down. Um, now, in some ways, this all sounds very abstract and theoretical, you know, but it really does impact on people in personal and challenging ways. Because what happens maybe when you're feeling sad or in grief or maybe unsettled or agitated or anxious, or you have serious questions about your life or about God or about faith, 
But you don't feel you can actually acknowledge any of those or talk about them or let them come to the surface because you'll know they'll clash with the higher truths that are already believed by your community. And that can become really unhealthy, especially if someone is experiencing the grief of tragedy, for example. But they're being told that they shouldn't be feeling that way because of a higher truth that they're supposed to be aligned with. And they're being told that by somebody with power, somebody often who they trust, who they look to for guidance. And again, this is not particular forms of conservative Christianity that it's limited to, but all sorts of ways of being in the world, positive or overly positive psychology. Um, some of the self-help stuff does this as well. You've got to speak the truth you want over your life and don't allow dirty things like facts and experience and emotions to get in the way. I remember when my partner Hannah... I uh, was in a church meeting uh, many years ago and there was this song that we used to sing that the lines went something like, I'm not going to live by what I see, I'm not going to live by what I feel. I remember those were two of the lines in the song anyway. And the whole point was you're supposed to live by faith and trust and the truth of God rather than the emotions and the experiences that you actually might be having in your real life. And Hannah was going through a period of pulling apart some of that way of seeing the world. And so she belted out at the top of her voice, I'm going to live by what I see. I'm going to live by what I feel. Um, and I kind of, you know, being the peacemaking, uh, peace-loving guy that I am was kind of like, oh, my gosh, um, maybe sing that a little quieter. But, um, you know, what she was pushing against was this idea that there was this kind of higher truth that should shut down the kind of experiences and feelings that you're actually having in your real life. And I've seen this really happen, especially for people for whom suffering and tragic circumstances have come along. And there's no space for them within a faith community because nobody wants to be reminded that there are experiences that contradict the truth that everyone's brought into, you know? And so something that faith and spirituality is, I think, supposed to be a really profound resource for, you know, to help us negotiate the challenges of our real lives and experiences instead becomes something that can make the experience of suffering even worse. I remember a number of years ago, uh, I had been, or we had been married for a couple of years, and we'd been trying to start a family, and for some reason things hadn't quite happened yet, and it was a bit disorienting. You know, we were doing our best to follow the script that we'd been given, you know, grow up, find a good Christian partner, get married, and then have children. That's the way these things worked. And we'd sorted out the first three by now, but then the fourth didn't seem to be working out quite as quickly and smoothly as we'd imagined. And, you know, this is pretty early in the journey when I still had no idea how difficult the coming years were going to be in relation to this. But I was speaking at a church conference and I ended up in the green room with one of the other guest speakers and a few other people. And if you don't know what a green room is at a church conference, I guess it's like green rooms in other places too. Uh, they're not literally green, but it's generally where you go to escape the regular people and eat delicious food served to you on giant platters. Anyway, here I was in this room with this guest uh, speaker and he was a faith preacher and he used to talk a lot about how God had blessed him with all these children and he had a big house that God had blessed him with and so on. And he asked me if we had kids, kind of a question that over the years I would come to dread in many ways. But at this stage, I was still just figuring it out and I said, no. And then he said, are you going to have kids? And I didn't quite know what to say. I hadn't hit this convo really before in this kind of way and I certainly hadn't had it with a charismatic, authoritative faith preacher in a room filled with people who were all nodding and agreeing with everything that he said, you know, and I wanted to say, 
I wanted to say, yes, we're going to have kids, but because of how things were going, I didn't feel that I could say that with full integrity or authenticity, not fully. But then I also didn't want to contradict the truth that was already agreed upon by everybody in that room and by the preacher who was looking intently into my eyes, you know. This truth that if I wanted kids, God of course would provide them because that's how it works. And why on earth would anyone like me doubt this, especially someone who's also speaking at this conference? So I was caught between these two things and I ended up mumbling something like, oh, yes, yes, we'll have kids, God willing. Uh, so I added this God willing on the end of my sentence. That was kind of my get out clause. I mean, God willing was not even a phrase I would ever use in normal conversation, but it obviously emerged from somewhere in my subconscious as the as the clause that might get me to escape from this moment with some of my integrity intact. But of course it didn't work at all. He nearly spluttered out his coffee when he heard me say God willing, and he, he turned to me and said, let me tell you something. God is willing. You just have to believe it. And in this moment, I felt this colliding of these two realities, you know, the truth that I wanted to believe and that was being laid out to me in that moment by the man of God, that of course God wanted this and of course it would happen unless I doubted and said stupid things like God willing, which would probably demonstrate a level of doubt for which God would then not give his kids just to teach me a lesson. Um, But I also knew that things weren't this simple and I felt nauseous. I did. I felt sick that I couldn't hold my ground and my honesty on authenticity in that moment. And so my honesty my real experience was buried and pushed down because it was no match for the truth that was being told to me in my face. And as I mentioned in the first episode, this kind of thing is not limited to religious communities at all. I mean, this happens all the time. We know it happens in politics. Uh, So although we tell ourselves that we want honest politicians, we also know that politicians often can't be honest, not if they're going to survive, not if that honesty would bring them into conflict with the larger truths to use that word in inverted commas, that their party is supposed to believe in it. I guess I'm using truth as as a kind of metaphor for ideology here. So what if you were a right-wing politician, for example, whose party didn't believe in climate change? Hypothetically, uh, of course this would never happen, but let's let's hypothetically say it might happen. Um, And then, and so you were in this party... And then you start reading and discovering and exploring and finding out that climate change is in fact real and that humans really are the driving cause of this change because that's where the science leads. What do you do with that? Your newfound insights, your questions, the evidence that you're uncovering is going to intersect with the prevailing truth or ideology of your community, in this case your political party. And if you're going to be honest about what you are coming to realise, you might actually find that you're no longer welcome in the club. And so you just bury it, you just push it down and you keep, towing the party line. So when honest and real experience clashes with the truths that are held to by your community, what happens is that systems of power can really act to suppress and to control and to marginalise. But there is another option we can take too, and that's one that people are taking at the moment, I think. And we can respond to all of this, all of these problems of truth and power and oppression and marginalisation We can respond to that by pulling apart all notions of truth entirely. We look at our experiences and our diverse realities around the world and the problems with power and the way powerful people have used truth to their advantage and we say, you know what, to hell with truth anyway. What is truth? I'm going to just talk to you about my truth and what's true for me is true for me and what's true for you is true for you. And in many respects, this is a really understandable response to the misuse of truth by power systems and by powerful people. What's interesting to note is that the problem with this is that the people with power are not so easily upended by this kind of thing. And what we're seeing happen in the world right now 
is that people with power are taking advantage of the what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me kind of mentality and using it to, in fact, further control people. They do that by pitting people's various truths against one another and propagating conflict and the idea of post-truth and alternative facts. And so for a while, everyone was pretty excited about the idea that truth was relative in this kind of postmodern world, you know. But then that's turned into a post-truth world where people in power just make things up and they're like, hey, this is my truth, don't, don't deny my truth. And so what do we do with that? Are these our only choices, you know, the tyranny of the truths that are told to us by those with power or the complete relativization of truth to the point where we live in a post-truth world and people just say and believe whatever they like despite the evidence or the wisdom or the past. So I want to think briefly about how we might navigate another way forward. And this is where I think the wisdom of our faith traditions can genuinely help us um, not as truth to bash you over the head with, but as a recognition, at least in the first instance, that these challenges are not new. Human beings have been wrestling with power and truth and lies and honesty and control and grief and rage and suffering and violence for tens of thousands of years. These are not new problems. And we're actually not all that different. For all of our civilization and advancement and technology and knowledge and science, we're the same kind of fundamental biological creature that we were 10,000 years ago. And when we think about history, one of the things we realise is that we often learn it from the perspective of the winners, you know? The losers don't generally get to write history books as often, usually because they've been wiped out in some kind of way. And if they do write history, uh, no one reads the history of the losers. But I think we're learning now that the history that we read has been shaped by those with power. And so what's emerging at the moment in conversations about history, for example, is that people are challenging the, the narrative of, let's say, the empire and the colonizers. If you think about the British Empire or North American colonization, people are, you know, and people are saying, hey, the way that its narrative used to go was that America was discovered in 1492 by Christopher Columbus. Um, but that's a narrative shaped by a particular power structure because America was not discovered in 1492. And if you, were listen to the, if you were to listen to the story of the discovery of North America, um, you know, and I use that word discovery in inverted commas here, if we think about the arrival of Christopher Columbus, when it's told from one perspective, it's this great arrival of a new nation, told from another perspective, that of the Native Americans, for example, you might find that the history that is told sounds quite different. And so there's a recognition that power has shaped certain narratives, and we have to pay attention to other voices and experiences to reshape the way we see and understand reality. So, back to faith traditions. The curious thing about many of the texts of the Jewish and Christian tradition in particular is that they're written from the perspective, to some degree at least, of the losers, you know. Much of the Old Testament story is collated and gathered together when the people are in exile. So, although the story goes way back, most of it is put together and written down. Uh, after Israel... Ancient Israel has been destroyed and decimated and wiped out. Jerusalem has been ruined by this Babylonian empire. And the people that were kind of left, many of them have been taken prisoner, have been scattered around the world. And it's at this time that they really decide to write their history. And so they're putting these texts together while they're in captivity in a foreign land, not knowing if they'll ever get a chance to return home. 
So in this sense, you know, they're not really the ones supposed to be writing the stories in the history. And if they do, they're not stories that are supposed to last. No one's really supposed to read them. But we do. We still have them. And what you find, actually, is because their stories are written from the underside, they include all sorts of things that you probably wouldn't find in the kind of history and propaganda written by a victorious empire. They include protest and lament and grief and complaint. And for every text that talks about hope and promise and blessing, there's a text that talks about misery and suffering and asking if God has abandoned them. I mean, like, there's a whole book called Lamentations, you know. And even the book of Proverbs, which is supposed to be a book in some ways that gives you wisdom about how to live and goes hand in hand uh, with all of these great promises for your life. Um, well, that book is contrasted with the book of Job, which is about a guy who does all of the things you should do according to the book of Proverbs. He follows all of the correct principles and everything goes terribly for him and his life is awful. We also find this other kind of text in both the Jewish and Christian tradition, one that's called apocalypse or apocalyptic texts. Um, the most famous example in the New Testament is the book of Revelation, although there are bits of apocalyptic texts scattered throughout um, the, the, the Bible in various places. Now, book of Revelation is a book that I grew up with as this kind of predictive book for how the world's going to end, you know. So we were all trying to, it's full of symbols and imagery and all sorts of fantastical visions of beasts and babies and um, Babylon and other things beginning with B. Um, and the job really of the reader of this text was to try and figure out how it was predicting um, when the Antichrist was going to come, when Jesus would return and when the world was going to end. But that's not really what the text is supposed to be doing at all. The word apocalypse literally means to uncover or to reveal something. And what these texts would do is that they would emerge, and they did emerge among Jewish and Christian people in the face of empire, of powerful empire. In the case of the book of Revelation, it's during the time of the Roman Empire when Christians were a minority who were being persecuted. Some of them were being killed uh, for their refusal to pay allegiance and worship to Caesar uh, because instead they wanted to follow this Jesus way of being in the world. Uh, and this text, this apocalypse, essentially said, look, there's a story that the empire is telling us. There's a way of life that the empire is giving us. There's a power structure that we are being given. There's a status system that controls where we fit in life. Um, but what if there's another story? What if there's another way of seeing this? What if we could draw on our own experiences and our own reality to say, no, the story of the empire is not the only story to be told here. There's something else going on. And the book of Revelation itself, the letter of Revelation that was sent to these Christians who were scattered throughout this Roman Empire at this time, was don't give in to the power and the story and the control of the empire around you because there's something else worth saying. There's another kind of reality to live in. There are other kinds of experiences to listen to. There's another story that emerges from the experiences of those on the underside. And so how did, might this help us? Well, if we're going to think about truth without falling into the traps of either truth is this oppressive ideology or truth is totally meaningless, 
both of which are taken advantage of by toxic power systems. And I think maybe we need the intersection of a number of different things. I do actually think somehow we need the input of our faith traditions. They have something to offer us. They have wisdom. These traditions have examined the human condition and experience for thousands of years. It doesn't mean they go unquestioned, you know. There is much to question. Even in the Christian faith, questioning is supposed to be integral, actually, to the whole thing. The entire Christian faith centers on the story of a guy who, in the climactic moment of his entire life and mission, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Questions, doubts, and protests are supposed to be built into the core of thing. And so in that way, I think we need the input of our faith traditions to help us navigate what it means to know, what it means to believe, what it means to understand. But we also need to listen to the scientists and the poets and the philosophers. And we should pay attention to our own experiences and emotions and bodies. And we must. We must listen to the voices of those on the margins too. I'm aware of the irony of saying this, you know, as another straight white guy who started a podcast. But again, in the Christian faith, the voices of the margins make up the bulk of the sacred text of our tradition. And we must continue to listen to them in that light and let that challenge us that it's not just about listening to the voices from the margins that are in those texts from back then, but that that should compel us to listen to the voices from those on the underside here and now because there's a different kind of experience that emerges from those without the power, from those who might be honest to share their real experiences of reality as they are even when that experience and those questions and those things that emerge might be uncomfortable conversations. And I wonder whether all of this and the intersection of all of these different things can help us to generate maybe an inbuilt humility and even a testability to the knowledge that we acquire, the things that we believe, the faith that we hold. Everything that we know and believe should be capable of being tested and questioned and provoked and pushed. And if necessary and if needed, should be able to change if that's where the conversation leads us. If we're not willing to have that conversation, then essentially what we're saying is I'm comfortable with an unquestionable ideology. So that's where we're going. That's where we're heading. And next time on the podcast... We are going to continue this conversation by talking about gurus and the problem with charisma. So that's next time on In The Shift.